peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in once again to another episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. I am your host, the Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas, and it is my great pleasure and privilege to be doing so today. To continue our series on NICAP's Good Case File, which is publicly available on NICAP.org, their official website. NICAP standing for the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. Today I'm going to read you several cases from the file, all from the 40s. that can be considered the originators of the modern UFO investigative legitimate like um, legitimacy that's the word legitimacy because these were all documented in Project Blue Book and all considered of unknown origin with no explanation That is, of course, because Project Blue Book was not meant to prove the existence of UFOs. It was meant to discredit and disprove the existence of UFOs. And it would never allow itself to admit that these unknowns were rather what they appeared to be and what they were seen to be. That is, unidentified flying objects seen by credible witnesses before the popular mindset had even really spread across through pop culture. We'll start with the White Sands Incident also known as the C.B. Moore case, which occurred April 24, 1949, in Aire, New Mexico, outside of White Sands. April 24, 1949, three miles north of Aire, New Mexico, 10.30 a.m., Mountain Time, General Mills meteorologist and balloon expert Charles B. Moore 
and four Navy crew on a balloon launch crew, Akers, Davidson, Fitzsimmons, and Mormon, saw a white, round ellipsoid, shadowed yellowish on one side. Length and width ratio was 2.5 times. So it was two and a half times longer than it was wide. Across the sky from the south, azimuth 210 degrees, elevation 45 degrees. To the east, at about 5 degrees, with secular angular velocity. Passing near the sun, 126 degrees, azimuth 60 degrees, elevation. Tracked by Moore, viewing through a 25 magnification, 25 times magnification, ML-47 theodolite after it came out of the sun. Objects seemed to turn to the north, maintained constant azimuth at about 20 degrees, 25 degrees, when it suddenly climbed from 25 degrees to 29 degrees in elevation in 10 seconds and disappeared by distance or dust obscuration. Distance was unknown, but assumed 57 miles. Velocity is then 5 miles a second, or 18,000 miles per hour. Earth orbital velocity, not escape velocity. But this is pure assumption on Sparks 60 seconds measurements. A more detailed account is as follows. This is known as the McLaughlin Crew Case, which is also the White Sands Case and the C.B. Moore Case. White Sands Proving Ground at New Mexico, April 24th, 1949. Entitled, How a Scientist Tracked Flying Saucers. It was written by none other than the man who was at the time in charge of a team of Navy scientists at the Super Hush Hush Guided Missile Test and Development Area, known as White Sands Proving Ground, New Mexico. He was Commander R.B. McLaughlin, an Annapolis graduate and a regular Navy officer. His story had been cleared by the military and was absolute, 180 degree direct contradiction to every press release that had been made by the military in the past two years. Not only did the commander believe that he had proof that UFOs were real, but that he knew that they were. I am convinced, he wrote in the true article, that it, referring to a UFO he had seen at White Sands, was a flying saucer, and further, that these disks are spaceships from another planet operated by animate, intelligent beings. On several occasions during 1948 and 1949, McLaughlin or his crew at the White Sands Proving Ground had made good UFO sightings. The best one was on April 24, 1949 when the commander's crew of engineers, scientists, and technicians were getting ready to launch one of the huge 100-foot diameter skyhook balloons. It was 10.30 a.m. on an absolutely clear Sunday morning. Prior to the launching, the the crew had set up a small weather balloon to check the winds at lower levels. One man was watching the balloon through a theodolite 
an instrument similar to a surveyor's transit built around a 25-power telescope magnifying lens. One man was holding a stopwatch, and a third had a clipboard, clipboard to record the measured data. The crew had tracked the balloon to about 10,000 feet, when one of them suddenly shouted and pointed off to the left. The whole crew looked at the part of the sky where the man was excitedly pointing, and there was a UFO. It didn't appear to be large, one of the scientists later said, but it was plainly visible. It was easy to see that it was an elliptical shape and had a whitish silver color. After taking a split second to realize that they were t- looking at, one of the men swinging the th- uh, swung the theodolite around to pick up the object, and the timer reset his stopwatch. For 60 seconds, they tracked the UFO as it moved toward the east. In about 55 seconds, it had dropped from an angle of elevation of 45 degrees to 25 degrees. Then it zoomed upward, and in a few seconds, it was out of visible sight. The crew had no sound or heard no sound, and the New Mexico desert was so calm that day that they could have heard a whisper a mile away. When they reduced the data they had collected, McLaughlin and crew found out the UFO had been traveling four degrees per second. At one time during the observed portion of its flight, the UFO had passed in front of a range of mountains that were visible to the observers. Using this as a checkpoint, they estimated the size of the UFO to be 40 feet wide and 100 feet long. And they computed that the UFO had been at an altitude of 296,000 feet, or 56 miles, in the atmosphere. When they had first seen it, and that it was traveling 7 miles per second, or 18,000 miles per hour. And that's written in Project Blue Book by Edward J. Ruppelt, Captain of the Air Force. That was the White Sands Incident. This is now the Kenneth Arnold sighting, known as the Mount Rainier sighting, occurring June 24, 1947. June 24, 1947, Mount Rainier, Washington. At 3 p.m., pilot Kenneth Arnold was flying his airplane near Mount Rainier and noticed some flashes of light. He then saw the source of the flashes, a string of nine very bright metallic objects. Interesting that multiple daylight objects were the subject of the first major UFO sighting wave of the summer of 1947, all preceded by the Arnold sighting. Investigative journalist Blocher found 20 reports on June 24th alone. These were mostly in the far northwestern states of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Sightings were scattered throughout the day from morning to night. After the 24th, the sightings rate stayed at about 10 per day or higher, with sightings occurring not just in the West, but throughout the country as well. In the Project Blue Book records, Fred Johnson's sighting occupies a unique position. 
It is the first of 701 UFO reports that the Air Force admitted it could not explain at the time Project Blue Book closed in 1969. Inasmuch as Arnold's sighting preceded Johnson's by a minute or so, the astute reader may ask why Arnold's sighting is not the first unexplained sighting and Johnson's the second. The answer is that the Air Force analysts claim to have explained Arnold's sighting as a mirage. Of course, it is difficult to imply that the objects seen by Arnold and Johnson could be both explained and unexplained. And that is why I was saying the Project Blue Book by the Air Force was not to credit UFO sightings or to find which ones were real, but to discredit as much of the UFO sightings as they could, even in cases where they could not discredit clearly the same set of unidentified flying objects seen merely moments later by another person, but rather uh, they... They would attack people's personal characters. They would attack people's personal uh, cognizance or intelligence or even outright lie and assume that the person was hallucinating and or, uh, you know, making something up, like creating a hoax or whatever. When there was clearly no evidence or reason for it, it was complete debunking uh, intentionally to try to debunk, you know, for debunking's sake. Now it's Project Blue Book, right? But still, there are 701 UFO reports that the Air Force admitted it could not explain and had no explanation for, with this case being the first. But not specifically Kenneth Arnold's sighting of it. But the UFO flaps that would follow with 20 sightings per day over three states in the Pacific Northwest. I spent the next 20 or 30 seconds, Kenneth Arnold says, urgently searching the sky all around me, to the sides and above and below me, in an attempt to determine where the first flash of light had come from. The only actual plane I saw was a DC-4 far to my left and rear, apparently on its San Francisco to Seattle run. My momentary explanation to myself was that some lieutenant in a P-51 Mustang had given me a buzz job across the plane's uh, bow, the nose and it was the sun reflecting off its wings as he passed the, it had caused the flash. Before I had time to collect my thoughts or to find a closer aircraft, the flash happened again. This time I caught the direction from which it had came. I observed far to my left and to the north a formation of very bright objects coming from the vicinity of Mount Baker, flying very close to the mountaintops and traveling at tremendous speeds. I observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking aircraft flying from north to south at approximately 9,500-foot elevation and going seemingly in a definite direction of about 170 degrees. End quote. In the 1948 article, yeah, spring 1948 article written by Fate Magazine titled, I Did See the Flying Discs, Kenneth Arnold says the following. On Tuesday, June 24th, 1947, I had finished my work for the Central Air Service at Cahoulis, Washington. 
And about 2 o'clock, I took off from Chahalas, Washington Airport with the intention of going to Yakima, Washington. My trip was delayed for an hour to search for a large marine transport that supposedly went down near or around the southwest side of Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. This airplane has been discovered at the time of this writing, July 29, 1947. I flew directly toward Mount Rainier after reaching an altitude of about 9,500 feet, which is the approximate elevation of the high plateau from which Mount Rainier rises. I had made one sweep of this high plateau to the westward, searching all of the various ridges from the, for the marine airship and flew to the west down and near the ridge side of the canyon, <coughs> where Ashford, Washington is located. Unable to see anything that looked like the lost ship, I made a 360-degree turn to the right and above the little city of Mineral, starting again toward Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to an altitude of approximately 9,200 feet. The air was so smooth that day that it was a real pleasure flying, and as most pilots do when the air is smooth, they are flying at a higher altitude. I trimmed out my airplane in the direction of Yakima, Washington, which is almost directly east of my position, and simply sat in my plane observing the sky and the terrain. There is a DC-4 to the left and to the rear of me, approximately 15 miles distant, and I should judge at 14,000 feet elevation. The sky and air were as clear as crystal. Had I not flown more than two or three minutes on my course when a bright flash reflected on my airplane, it startled me as I thought I was too close to some other aircraft. I looked every place in the sky and couldn't find where the reflection had come from until I looked left and north of Mount Rainier, where I observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking aircraft flying from north to south at approximately 9,500 feet elevation and going seemingly in a definite direction of about 170 degrees north to south. They were approaching Mount Rainier very rapidly, and I merely assumed they were jet planes. However, I discovered that there was where the reflection had come from, as two or three of them every few seconds would dip or change their course slightly, just enough for the sun to strike them at an angle that reflected brightly in my eyes. These objects being quite far away, I was unable to, for a few seconds to make out their shape or their information. Very shortly, they approached Mount Rainier, and I observed their outline against the snow quite plainly. I thought it was very peculiar that I couldn't find their tails, but assumed there were some new type of jet. I was determined to clock their speed. I had two definite points, Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, to clock them by, and the air was so clear that it was very easy to see the objects and determine their approximate shape and size as far as 50 miles away. I remember distinctly that my sweep second hand on my 8-day clock, which was located on my instrument panel, read 1 minute to 3 p.m., as the first object of this formation passed the southern edge of Mount Rainier. I watched these objects with great interest as I had never before observed airplanes flying so close to the mountaintops. Flying directly south to southeast down the hogs back of a mountain range, I would estimate their elevation could have varied a thousand feet one way or another, up or down, but they were pretty much on the horizon to me, which indicate that they were the same elevation as I was. They flew as I have frequently observed geese fly, in a rather diagonal chain-like line, as they were linked together. They seemed to hold a definite direction, but swerved in and out of the high mountain peaks. Their seed at the time did not impress me, particularly because I knew that our army and air force at the time planes that went very fast. As a typo, it should say speed, not seed. So yeah, their speed did not impress me. What kept bothering me as I watched them flip and flash in the sun right along their path was the fact that I couldn't make out any tails on them, and I'm sure that any pilot would justify more than a second look at such a plane. 
I observed them quite plainly, and I estimated my distance from them, which was almost at right angles, to be between 20 to 25 miles. I knew they must be very large to permit me to observe their shape at that distance, even as clear as day as it was. In fact, I compared a Zeus fastener or cowling tool I had in my pocket with them, holding it up on them and holding it up on the DC-4 that I could observe at quite a distance to my left. And they seemed smaller than the DC-4, but I should judge their span would have been as wide as the furthest engines on each side of the fuselage of the DC-4. The more I observed these objects, the more upset I became, as I am accustomed and familiar with almost all flying objects, whether I am close to the ground or at higher altitudes. I observed the chain of these objects passing another high snow-covered ridge in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, and as the first one was passing the south crest of the ridge, the last object was entering the northern crest of the ridge. As I was flying in the direction of this particular ridge, I measured it and found it to be approximately five miles, as I could have safely assumed that the chain of these saucer-like objects was at least five miles long. I could quite accurately determine that pathway due to the fact that there were several of them as well as higher peaks on the side of their pathway. The last unit of this formation passed the northernmost high snow-covered crest of Mount Adams. I looked at my sweep second hand, and it showed that they had traveled the distance in 1 minute and 42 seconds. Even at the time of this timing did not upset me as I felt confident that after I landed there would be some explanation for what I had seen. A number of newsmen and experts suggested I might have been seeing reflections or even a mirage. This I know to be absolutely false as I observed these objects not only through the glass of my airplane, but I turned my airplane sideways where I could open my window and observe them with a complete unobstructed view. Even though after two minutes seemed like a very short time on the ground, in the air in two minutes time, a pilot can observe a great many things and anything within his field of vision probably as many as 50 or 60 times. I continued my search for the marine plane for another 15 or 20 minutes. While searching for this marine plane, the things I had just observed kept going through my mind. I became more disturbed, so after taking a last look at Teton Reservoir, I headed for Yakima. I might add that, that my complete observation of these objects, which I could even follow by their flashes as they passed Mount Adams, was around two and one half or three minutes. Although by the time they reached Mount Adams, they were out of my range of vision as far as determining shape or form. Of course, when the sun reflected from one or two or three of these units, they appeared to be completely round, and I am making a drawing to the best of my abilities with which I am including to the shape I observe these objects to be as they pass the snow-covered ridges of Mount Rainier. When these objects were flying approximately straight and level, they were just a thin black line, and the only time I could get a judgment as to their size was when they flipped. These objects were holding on almost constant elevation. They did not seem to be going up or becoming down, such as would be the case of rockets or artillery shells. I'm convinced in my own mind that they were some type of airplane, even though they did not conform with my, the many aspects of the conventional type of aircraft that I know. Although these objects have been reported by many other observers throughout the United States, there have been six or seven other accounts written by some of these observers that I can truthfully say must have observed the same string of objects that I did, particularly the descriptions of the three Western Airlines employees at Cedar City, Utah, the pilot from Oklahoma City, the locomotive engineer at Illinois, John Carlett, a United Press correspondent of Boise, Idaho, Dave Johnson, news editor of the Boise Daily Statesman, Captain Smith, a co-pilot, Stevens, and 
Marty Marrow of the United Airlines and Captain Charles F. Gibian and Jack Harvey of United Airlines, both of whom on July 28, 1947, made the observations on United Airlines Flight 105 westbound out of Boise, Idaho. It is my opinion that descriptions could not be very accurate taken from the ground unless these saucer-like disks were at quite a great height, and there is a possibility that all of the people who observed peculiar objects could have seen the same thing that I did, but it would have been very difficult from the ground to observe these for more than four or five seconds, and there is always the possibility of atmospheric moisture and dust near the ground which could have distorted one's vision while air observers I would judge to be more accurate in their description. I have in my possession now letters from all over the United States and Europe from people who profess that these objects have been observed over other portions of the world, principally Sweden, Bermuda, and California. And those are two cases from NICAP's archive. Good cases. From the 40s, late 40s, the Roswell era, post-war II era, earliest Project Blue Book era of investigating UFOs and the efforts made by witnesses to tell the truth the best they could. Both these sightings occurred in the air with qualified personnel, with experience, and acute analytical minds. They had equipment, and they had the knowledge and experience to make measurements, highly detailed measurements. And in the case of the White Sands, New Mexico event, convinced a Navy commander from Annapolis that the UFO phenomenon was not only real, but also proven to be piloted by intelligent alien life from other planets. Much to the understanding of America's mainstream official position and even the cliche attitudes of military personnel rather than being skeptical to the extreme the experience of seeing was believing for that Navy commander as it is for millions of people of rank or of a layman status. Neither of these incidences resulted in evidence. Neither of these incidences resulted in photographic evidence of any kind. But it's also to show that forensic evidence in terms of photographic evidence are direct remains or proof as they call it. Proof quote-unquote, that magical, made-up word, physical evidence, is the rare 
occasion is the rarity in this phenomenon is the unlikely of scenarios it's the most unlikely of scenarios that you would get physical trace evidence given the speed the swiftness the unexpected nature of these events as well as factors such as distance and limitations of both the human and technological factors present. Some cameras cannot quite easily capture aerial phenomenon, even in modern digital day, let alone in the 40s. And the human eye still remains superior in many cases in terms of long distance viewing than one would like to give it credit for making the human witness the paramount source of disclosure and truth as well as the only interpreting authority to the phenomenon the human eyewitness not technology all the cameras, all the video cameras in the world will only still produce at most the effect that a human being will have upon seeing it with no physical evidence available with their own two eyes. Thank you very much for listening to these two incredible UFO cases from the 40s from NICAP's Good Case File. I'm Beyond Top Secret Texan. You've listened to the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. Check out the link tree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan link. It's the only link you'll ever need to find all my social media, <laughs> my webpage, podpage.com slash Beyond Top Secret Texan, my merch store, as well as the various other um, you know podcast platforms that I upload in, wherever you're listening to it from there. You, if, if you have a preference uh, for third party or for specific provider, um, chances are I'm already hosted there. And if not, let me know and I'll do what I can to get my RSS feed available on as many platforms as possible. Thank you very much for listening. You guys are the greatest audience out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much. Peace out.